Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Great to be back after a couple of weeks' absence. But uh, Don't worry. I've, I have complained about your absence for most of the time when you were away. I'm sure you probably have, Peter. We've got a great show today because uh, our first guest uh, has been a fantastic little success story. Yeah. Uh, I won't take away too much thunder, but I'm really interested in, in listening to this. Oh, I, yeah. I probably, as a result of this, I'm going to uh, start eating start differently. <laughs> eating a bit differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the guest in question is Stephen Marks. He's a CEO and the co-founder of Guzman E. Gomez. I'm sure a lot of people out there right now um, uh, have been eating GYG for breakfast, uh, for our lunch, or even for breakfast. I, I do open early. It's a great story. And particularly Steve's background, hedge fund manager. He actually used to work with the guy who they based Bobby Axelrod in Billions on. And so very interesting character. So anyone out there who's ever watched Billions, the, the fund manager that Steve Marks used, used to work for was, in fact, the, the guy used for the box Bobby Axelrod character in Billions on Stan. We've also got uh, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. Anthony's one of the, um, the, the go-to guys when it comes for, to Fidelity, one of the biggest fund managers in the world, when they're trying to work out what's going on with international economies for their international funds. Anthony also has a take on the Aussie uh, market because he also is an Australian, but uh, his views on where the world economy is going, particularly with things like trade deals and mm. Brexits and all that's going on in Asia, will be very, very he, insightful. He is an Aussie, but um, he's, uh, he look, he's part of their overall investment strategy team or, yeah. or you know, very senior in that. And... Uh, Fidelity are a big time when it comes to investments globally mm. and what they're thinking about different markets, different asset classes, you know, where the different economies are moving, yep. that has a big impact on markets because when they move, they move truckloads of money. Exactly. And I'm, I'm going to ask him, how scared is he about an upcoming recession? Because a lot of people ask me, they see all this stuff about inverted yield curves and Donald Trump and markets jumping all around the place and trade wars. They are really worried about a recession. I'm personally not. I think we'll probably at least get to 2021. But Doyle would have the inside view on that kind of stuff. And that's one observation I'd make after being away for a couple of weeks, Peter, is there seems to be a little more talk about a recession here than when I went away. Yeah. Uh, and we're, maybe that's just the... Uh, the glass half empty people coming out, uh, but we've got a few of them out there at the moment, and yeah. uh, I guess we're a little bit delicately poised. Is yeah, that I, I think so too. And I, I would love to see the government spend spend more money rather than rely on interest rate cuts, but we'll see what um, Mr Doyle has to say on that. And finally on the show, Paul, we have Steve Killalay. Now, he's the uh, founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace. A an unusual idea, isn't it, to think that there is a link between economics and peace, but 
I bet you there is. Well, it's interesting to hear things like a positive peace index, but but Peter, that's an Australia. It's a, it's a, it's a global institute yeah. founded here in Australia, operating out of Australia. Used with, by uh, the UN. Used by a lot of uh, global operations. So again, another little uh, Aussie success story. Without a doubt, look forward to hearing from him. So without any further ado, let's go and welcome Stephen Marks to the program. Thanks for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. Okay, let's just sketch the history of Guzman y Gomez in Australia. When did it start? Who were the who were the people who started it? So I'm actually the founder of Guzman and Gomez, along with my best friend from New York, who I've known since I'm four years old, a gentleman named Robert Hazen. And Guzman and Gomez, which means Guzman and Gomez, are named after friends of ours that we grew up in New York. And we thought, what a better way to reintroduce Mexican food to Australia. And we opened up a first restaurant 13 years ago and named after friends of ours. So that's where Guzman and Gomez comes from. Okay, so um, was was the business uh, prototyped in Australia or in the U.S.? Yeah, so so my background uh, is, was was not well before then it was. But when I lived in New York and London, I used to run a hedge fund, and and I just stopped working one day. Well, I didn't stop working it. When I was living in London, I decided to move to Australia. My dream was always to build a hotel, and when I got down here, one of the things that I truly missed was Mexican food. And um, because every time I went to a Mexican restaurant, it was really poorly done, in my opinion. And we decided to reintroduce Mexican food to the country. So we actually opened up our first restaurant October 6th, 13 years ago. So uh, 2006 in Newtown. And, uh, and it's still open and, and actually hit a record last week, which was fantastic. After okay. 13 years. Okay. Now, Steve, you, you also, as you pointed out, you were a hedge fund manager on Wall Street and you worked with Stevie Cohen, who some people tell me was the, the, the person that Bobby Axelrod from Billions <laughs> is modelled on. Now, you, yeah. you, you, what do you say to that, the people who suggest well, that? I, well, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and obviously they have the Wharton School there and that's where Stevie recruited me from. And when I started with Stevie, he had $30 million on the management. Now he's worth over $15 billion. So the show is supposedly based on Stevie, but I think Bobby seems way cooler and more evil. Stevie <laughs> Cohen, you know, was definitely not evil, and uh, maybe it wasn't as cool as Bobby Axelrod, but he was way more ethical, which uh, which is obviously most important. Yeah, but yeah, it was an amazing ride. I was with him for four years, and uh, I've never seen somebody that talented uh, in the market since Stevie Cohen. Okay, but you're also, I think, a really important point uh, is to say that. When you look at what you've achieved with Guzman y Gomez, uh, and there are there is talk that you may will will be a, a company that will list. It's in a sense I think you've you've learned a lot about how successful franchises uh, and businesses like this can be grown. Is, is Guzman y Gomez a franchise or is it company owned exclusively? Well, right now. We're in Australia, which is obviously the foundation of our business. A lot of people, when they see Guzman and Gomez, they thought I brought it from the U.S., but I actually started the first store and the concept in Newtown, as I said earlier, in 2006. And we have you know, close to 120 restaurants here, and we have four in Tokyo and nine in Singapore. And you know, the goal, what's amazing with franchising is, out of, out of those restaurants, 80% of franchise, and say I own about 30 of them are corporate, we're going to look to own a lot more corporate restaurants going forward. And, and, and the goal is, 
you don't have time to have a 50-50 split because the restaurants are becoming more profitable. And we love running restaurants. And what better way to build a successful model than to own them with your franchisees? I think it just shows support of uh, how strong the economics of your business are and in and the, and the direction that they're heading in. Okay. Well, one of the things I've learned from some of the great Australian entrepreneurs and, and, and I guess even from people like uh, Richard Branson and even Jack Welch, I think they're f- fairly uh, high-achieving business people, is that you have to hang out with the right people and get the <laughs> right people around you when you want to grow something. And I noticed that in 2009, when you had six restaurants, you brought in Peter Ritchie, uh, Guy Russo and Steve German, all who were on the foundations of the the growth of McDonald's in, in this country. Was this a, a, a set strategy that you um, planned to, to grow the business or, or was it happenstance, a really lucky development? Well, you know, what's amazing. I think you, you nailed it right on the head there, Peter, is that in order to be successful, you, you, you need the right people around you that A, that understand the journey, but, but most importantly, that are ethical, experienced, and you want to celebrate the success one day of what you built. And I remember the time when we had about six restaurants, you know, when we were just starting to become profitable. I mean, GYG was losing so much money early on because people didn't understand the concept. They didn't understand the food. And one thing I always said is I'm never going to compromise on my food or my people. And we never have. And we were lucky enough as we started to turn positive that um, we're and we were actually running out of money because it was mine and my business partner's Robert's money that. We had investors coming in. I remember Robert said, you can't be picky now. <laughs> you know what I mean? We need the money. Yeah. I said, I, I can't do it unless I find the right people. And we were lucky enough to be introduced to Pete Ritchie all those years ago, over 10 years ago. When Pete saw GYG, I remember I took him to the MLC center. He's like, he said he was never more happy than when he opened up his first McDonald's in Australia. And that led to meeting Steve German, who was obviously the deputy manager, director, and CFO for so many years. Guy Russo, who started with Charlie Bell, and Guy became obviously the CEO of McDonald's here in China, and obviously Kmart and Target with West Farmers. Yep. So those, so those three, unfortunately, Charlie Bell didn't join us. He passed away. It's the first non-American to run McDonald's globally. But when you talk about talent and the right people to understand your journey to build something, you know, my business partner said we were lucky. I don't believe in luck. I think you know, but it, it was it was destined to happen. And and our relationship with them to this day, I mean, guys, my chairman Steve German was my chairman. It's just, it's, it's really amazing. Mm. Now, it seems to me when I've been, you know, looking at you guys, the last time I interviewed you, uh, one thing you weren't pushing, because I, I think the food was popular and you were growing really well, but there wasn't this heavy emphasis on uh, the, the, the actual unbelievable quality of the food. Tell us about your decision to, to put a big investment to make sure that your food was unbelievably distinctive. You know, it's, um, you know, and obviously this has been crucial to our success. So we had the guys that built McDonald's. I remember when they came on, right, I said, the reason why you guys love it is because of our food and our culture. And let alone McDonald's had good culture. I said, but you're not allowed to touch my food. And that was like the agreement early on. I mean, these guys are great culture guys, great franchising guys. I mean, McDonald's is probably the most successful restaurant business in Australia, hands down. You know, but as GYG started to grow, we were very lucky early on that because we suffered so much, and, 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 and that I'm personally extremely competitive was that we, we ended up building probably one of the fastest fresh food operating platforms anywhere. And as time grew up, grew on, and all of a sudden we opened up a drive-thru, I realized, wow, I got the experience of these amazing McDonald's guys, and we're just as fast as them, but our food is totally different. 
And at that point, opening up our first drive, I remember going to see a chicken farm. We sell a lot of chicken at Guzmana Gomez. And I saw a barn-raised versus free-range, and I couldn't believe the difference. And even though GYG was going through some tough economic times there with the, um, with the economics of our restaurant, I remember going to the board and I said, guys, we have to make this step a huge transition point in our history. We have to basically take a stance on animal welfare and, and our view on food. And it sort of went along the lines of, you know, we would believe that people should eat meats of higher animal welfare. They should eat smaller portion sizes. So we introduced our mini range because we had, you know, the operational uh, capacity for throughput that we can do smaller sizes as well. And, you know, and we also believe that, that food should be clean. So what happened, Peter, was so we basically became the first fast food chain to serve fresh, unprocessed, free-range chicken. And then because I thought they were going to fire me because it was so expensive and it kind of hurt the economics of the restaurant, I needed to find something else that I could serve at GYG, you know, because our goal at that point was really to, to, to reinvent fast food. Because at some point, you know, I don't know where fast food became bad for you. And I became looking at a French fry, and I remember looking at a competitor's fry one day, and it was 85% potato. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. What's the other 15%? And, and, and if you know me, I've become very passionate and focused on the stuff that I love. And, and obviously GYG is that, is that I started to basically go into stuff that suppliers had. So we eventually found a clean French fry. And then, and then we had a family make this clean French fry. It was just potato, no additives, no preservatives, no colors, no unaccepted additives as well. Mm. And, um, and it sort of changed our focus on food. And then I just went and hired nutritionists, started doing a ton of research saying, hey, you know what? Our view is that clean is healthy. And then it took us three years to basically, and we're so proud a couple of weeks ago, Peter, we launched possibly, you know, I'm not really sure about everybody else, but the GYG, you know, 100% clean menu, which uh, is based on four facts, which are no added preservatives, no artificial flavors, no added colors, and no unacceptable additives. So a very proud moment for us. So, Steve, I guess given that, uh, this decision to... You know, raise the costs but improve the quality and the cleanliness, it must have had a big impact on social media because the people who are in social media love these kinds of heroic decisions all based around a pretty good value. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, this is what I love. Why is the market, I mean, we went out about, I think it was September 24th. We've had double-digit comps since, which is, you know, amazing for a restaurant business. We were, we, we've had strong comps, which are year-over-year sales. But when you, when you start to hit double digit and we had another record yesterday, I think people want to be educated and are more educated about what they're eating. And I think they really respect the food companies that are totally transparent and in how they do that. And I think our guests, I think they always love GYG food because obviously we're opening more restaurants and the volumes are, are increasing every year. But now they know why they love it so much. And I think either you can do like everybody, anybody can go out with like a gimmicky marketing campaign. But this is, this, is, this is something that, that is meaningful to GYG and took years and years of work to develop. So, you know, I mean, I, I hope the, the, the industry takes note of it and, uh, and follows, us, follows, uh, our, follows us in our journey. Okay, Steve. And, so, and creates their own journey. Okay, so tell us about the vision going forward then. So the vision going forward, as I said earlier, Peter, is, is truly to reinvent fast food, you know, especially in Australia. So right now we have... You know, 23 drive throughs I expect another 15 will open this year. We've got a, I mean, a pretty large, detailed real estate team. And the goal, I think we'll open up, you know, low 20s this year. Hopefully next year, do 30 restaurants. We've got uh, Singapore's double-digit comping. Tokyo's about to turn. We have four restaurants. 
But the, one of the most exciting things besides our Australian growth is we're opening up our first store in the United States uh, outside of Chicago in Naperville in January 2020, probably with the coldest week of the year in the States. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but it's a drive-thru. Okay, drive through is our big play right now. Okay. And so for those people who are hanging out to invest in you when you begin the stock market, how many years, mate? I mean, listen, we're obviously just focused on opening up the next restaurant and making sure it's successful. But, you know, about a year ago, we sold a minority stake to uh, TDM, which is run, well, our investments are with Tom Town, which probably is the best investment company right now in Australia. So our goal with them and with Guy and Pete and Steve is that, you know, we're looking to hopefully have a successful IPO in the next three years. Great stuff. You've done a fantastic job, mate. And it's, it's interesting, in my history... There's only been one Mexican restaurant that was any good, and it was called Mexican Mix at Byron Bay many years ago before you even thought of that. Yeah, but uh, it didn't survive. But uh, you've certainly, your, your, your unique contribution to Australia is you've actually sold Mexican food to Australians. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're getting there. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. And that was Stephen Marks, the co-founder of Guzman E. Gomez. Uh, Now, are you investing for income but finding it difficult with the current interest rates? Join us at the Switzer Income Conference and Masterclass in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and hear from some of Australia's finest finance minds. On the day, they'll tell you how they're investing for income and they'll show you how to navigate Dr. Phil Lowe's next interest rate decision. To purchase tickets to the day, head to www.switzerevents.com.au. And let's just go through the dates, Paul. I wonder if you know what day is the Well, I, I do, Peter. I was going to say, first of all, I hope that Dr. Phil Lowe's next interest rate decision is not to cut rates That's any right. further. Had a gutful of cuts. I've had a gutful of cuts. But anyhow... Uh, yeah, in Sydney on Remembrance Day, that's Monday the 11th of November. Mm-hmm. Melbourne, Tuesday the 19th of November, and we'll be in Brisbane on Wednesday the 20th of and, November. And have you worked out what you're going to say in this masterclass, Paul? Look, I'm going to make it a little more technical than the last one, Peter, but mm-hmm. I do actually want to go into the bond market. And uh, apart from talking about different types of bonds, but a bit about the pricing, because I think that uh, there's some terminology that's used in uh, when people are shown different types of fixed interest investments. Mm. And some of that terminology could be really misleading. And, uh, you know, one of those sort of things I hate are, are things like um, running yield. I think it's a terrible concept. Yeah. Uh, and people should be focused on things like yield to maturity. I want to explain why that's the case. So that, Very uh, important points. Very boring. But, but I promise everyone listening, I will make Paul well, really interesting. The subject is really important. It sounds shockingly boring, but Peace Witzer will dress it up and make it an entertaining experience for everyone included, even Paul. Paul will even enjoy his boring uh, presentation. I'm looking forward to your adding the entertainment highlights. <laughs> well, look, income is so important, I will stretch myself to be at my entertaining best. So Anthony Doyle from Fidelity joins us. And Anthony, we are really, I think most people are worried, is Australia and the world economy heading for a recession? Well, you opened up with a big question, uh, Peter. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me back on the show. So I'm more optimistic um, on the domestic economy in particular and also the global economy. So there's no denying that the global economy is being impacted by the trade tensions between uh, China and the US, despite the 
short-term resolution that we've experienced this week, and that's likely to continue going forward as big global institutions and companies look to offshore their supply chains outside of China. So they'll have a supply chain in China to distribute product into China and a supply chain outside of China to distribute product throughout the rest of the world. So that's going on at the moment. That's having an implication on business and consumer investment and sentiment in particular. But we fundamentally don't expect a recessionary environment, a global recessionary environment next year. Um, central banks have worked very quickly and aggressively over the course of this year to reduce interest rates. There'll be a massive tailwind for growth going forward. Um, so the main fear we have at the moment is fear itself in a way that this narrative of recession uh, and, uh, and a downturn in the global or domestic economy actually starts to impact on households and businesses and their willingness to spend and their willingness to consume and invest. Do you think businesses uh, are worried per se about the trade deal or are they just sort of uh, responding to perhaps, you know, just a, just a lower growth outlook? I think uh, ultimately what they're doing is have, trying to cater or try to build in contingency plans for a environment which is very uncertain and can move in either direction very quickly uh, in terms of the US and China's trade relationship. You seem to sort of take one step forward, two mm -hmm. steps back, and that's sort of been the trend of the last 12 to 18 months, and that's going to continue. And you, are you expecting any quick resolution to this, or are we still going to be talking about the trade deal in 12 months' time, do you think? No, I think both parties are, are so far apart that we're not going to have a return to the previous sort of uh, trade environment that we, we had experienced before the US had started to, to look to uh, implement tariffs on China. And don't forget, Donald Trump's position is not too far away from uh, the Democrats' position uh, in the US. And even if we have this electoral cycle coming up, I think there's sort of bipartisan agreement that uh, this is the right thing to do in terms of competitiveness with US and China. So, so do you think then that the, the plus from Friday's inverted commerce trade deal phase one, is that it's likely now that we won't see an escalation in the trade war. At least it's, it's cooling down. I think it's a, it's a truce rather than... <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a truce at the moment. It's a truce uh, where everyone needs to be a winner sometime. Right? Yeah, but, I mean, I'll, you don't know what tweet's going to come out next week, right? No, or, no. or how you might see the president look to uh, play to his base yeah. in the US as we move on into this electoral cycle. Mm. So you're an economist, not a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right, let's, let's move out of that and ask the question then. Um, you, you, you're saying that you're optimistic about Australia, um, but do you worry about the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates too much and the implications of that? Yeah, I, I do, Peter. So, uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've been on the show before and I've spoken about my, my decade in, in the UK and, and Europe and the actions that central banks took there in cutting interest rates and implementing QE. And what I worry about is the exacerbation of uh, asset price rises, uh, income inequality within an economy and within a country, the shifts to the right and the left that you see within the political spectrum. Uh, but equally, I think that in actions speak louder than words, right? And in the RBA cutting rates so aggressively three times in the last five months, I think they've got people worried that, well, what is going wrong? And uh, so I was at a conference this morning with Peter Costello and he said, 
And I think he, he summed it up pretty nicely in that if you spoke to someone 10 years ago and said, this economy has an unemployment rate of 5.3%, house prices are starting to rebound again, uh, you've got a trade surplus and a current account surplus, where should interest rates be? And he said, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would say 5 or 6%, and your 10-year bond yield would be at around about 6 or 7%. But to be at three quarters of a percent and on emergency settings, something's gone very, very wrong. And I think it's more a function of the global environment rather than our domestic environment. So you're a global cross-asset investment specialist. So, so given what you've just said... Which is a global smart aleck. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you might be a bit nasty, Peter. I was just trying to use... I'm, a, you, I'm an economist. I can bag an economist. You can't. You're a banker. I'm just going for the... For, for, I think it's a great title, right? Yeah, great <laughs> so, title. You say so, it every time I'm on, you say it. Yes, thank you. It, it actually sounds like the winner of last year's Melbourne Cup. It does. It? It was, <laughs> so given yes, what you've right. just said... You want a Melbourne Cup tip? How, I don't have one. How should I be on? How should our listeners be investing, given the scenario you've just outlaid? Yeah, so I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with how low term deposit rates mm -hmm. are now. And, uh, you know, overwhelmingly... Self-managed super funds, for example, and uh, retirees, for example, have high cash and def defensive assets in their portfolios, which is the right thing to do as you start to enter into your retirement phase of life, for example. However, it's a brand new world. And uh, now that you're not getting the same sort of income that you once enjoyed mm -hmm. from cash or from fixed income, for example, they're going to have to increasingly look at other sources of income to generate those sort of retirement and, and protect their standard of living uh, for, for their retirement years. So I think that a large beneficiary of ultra low or ultra easy monetary policy here domestically will be those companies and, and the frank dividend regime, for example. So, you know, your big four banks and, and your BHPs and your Rio Tintos, I think could see uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of interest um, given that the frank dividend element, um, and if, if you can generate a 7% yield on an investment, on a blue chip company, I think a lot of investors would sort of bite your hand off of that compared to where fixed interest So stay is. along the, the, the top 20 blue chip type stocks paying frank dividends, simply you're saying that the yield for those is gonna be so supportive that that's gonna outlay any a lot of the capital risk. Is that essentially, if I summarize what you're, what you're saying, Anthony? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, particularly given we're, we're through the Royal Commission now and low interest rates will impact on uh, interest margins from mm -hmm. the banks, but we've already seen their hesitancy in passing on rate cuts. Uh, so they are willing to sort of protect their margins in that sense. Anthony, I'm really glad you said that as someone who's got the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, which specialises in the top 30 companies <laughs> that pay dividends. I love the fact you said that, but uh, I want to try and just get an understanding of where your optimism comes from. Are you expecting the, the Treasurer to eventually start doing more fiscally? Are you expect because that would be the, the circuit breaker, which would mean that maybe rates don't have to go any lower because the government's going to be putting injections into the economy? I mean, what, what's really interesting about the argument around fiscal policy is that it would be extremely popular with uh, your average Australian if you're giving mm. them more money or if you're increasing welfare payments. So the hesitancy to do that is quite unusual in Australia and it's similar to the fiscal position in Germany where Germany, they are steadfastly uh, fixed to project black zero, which means a balanced budget. And we're mm. the same here. And um, the German attitude really came out of 
the Weimar Republic and hyperinflation mm -hmm. and a strong Deutschmark, for example. And our attitude to fiscal really came about late 80s, uh, throughout the 90s and Costello years where we started to implement surplus budgets and balanced budgets. So I think that yes, we should embark upon uh, greater infrastructure spending in order to address the aggregate demand issue uh, that we have here in Australia. However, I don't think that the Liberal uh, government will actually embark upon it because uh, that's one of their, their cornerstone policies and you can see that hesitancy um, already existing within the, the response. But yet you still remain more positive about the economic outlook. And is that, is that correct? And yeah. I'm trying to understand why. Yeah, sure. So my, my outlook isn't dependent upon fiscal or public mm -hmm. spending coming in really aggressively. I mean, we've already seen that Australia would have had a recession already if it wasn't for public spending. So mm -hmm. there is already a lot of... Uh, mm -hmm public demand being uh, put through our yeah, economy. Yeah, in the major states, New South Wales, Victoria, mm. lots of infrastructure happening. And, and as I said, I think the main danger is that the narrative, the narrative that we're going to face tough times and that we're going to enter into uh, a, a difficult scenario in a recessionary environment. And don't forget why the RBA is cutting rates. It's because it has an arbitrary inflation target that's finding difficult to meet. And so the, the way that they think they can do that is cutting rates. Now, I think the Aussie consumer is in far better health I think household balance sheets are in good health. I think that the recovery in the housing market will get people feeling better about um, their their own uh, their own budgets and their own uh, their own uh, household balance sheets. And I think businesses will also come to the fore with very low interest rates on business loans, uh, enabling them to go and invest in their businesses and find profitable projects mm -hmm. that they can they can invest in. Okay, one last thing. Um, you talked about how the Reserve Bank has its view on what inflation rate it needs or, or wants. But because we're living in such an unusual economy with digital disruption, new attitudes by consumers about where they buy their stuff at and the fact that they get so much pricing competition locally and from overseas, do a lot of the old relationships that you and I as economists would have expected namely that if you're not getting proper inflation, high inflation where you're probably not getting growth, do you think over time we might find that that nexus has changed because it's structurally a different economy? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the impacts of technology and the boost to productivity in terms of, you know, if we wanted to go out and, and book a flight for ourselves as opposed to going to a, a travel agent and employing someone to, to assist you with that. Like, uh, like Cook. Cook travel. Yeah, exactly. Um, some of these structural forces, I think our statistician is finding difficult to capture. And it's not just the ABS, but globally as well. Yeah. And uh, I totally agree that I think that if you capture the components of our CPI that we have to spend money on week in, week out, like utilities or insurance or school fees, uh, or food, uh, these components are rising very materially and the things that are actually depressing Australia's CPI are things like motor vehicles, uh, computers, things, discretionary items that mm. you don't necessarily have to buy on a week-in, week-out basis. And I personally think that's why household balance sheets have been under stress um, in addition to the lack of wage growth that we're going to see. But I think uh, monetary policy here is extremely potent given our linkages to variable rate loans. So we're going to start to see that turn around. Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, thanks for joining us.
Thank you. And that was Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. Now, um, I wanted to do an ad for my book. You know, I, I want to keep pushing the book. I want to get the sales up. But you guys, you know, particularly Paul, reckons I should be doing an ad for our new website, Paul. Well, uh, I can do it at both, Peter. We can do the book. Uh, you mean join the rich join club? Join the rich club. Uh, at switzerstore.com.au. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? That was what I was going to talk about, but okay. I didn't want you to cover today because I actually want you to talk about the brand new Switzer Daily website. Yeah. At uh, Switzer.com.au. We've been waiting for a long time for we this. We have been waiting a long time for it. Do you want to just uh, just, just, just well, put some colour on that Well, the Switzer website is at switzer.com.au. It's also called Switzer Daily. That's our, our little... Um, newspaper type um, name for it and I think the presentation is absolutely fantastic it's um, a really clean presentation it's up it's up to date it's modern it's clearly been designed by someone a lot younger than you and me Paul and and, and we're the better for it and daily is free that's important yeah and it's it's not just five days a week it's actually six days a week isn't yes, it because there's weekend Switzer and that's when I I relax and talk about other things you know, like successful people yeah if you're sick and tired of being a loser if you're very weak in switzer you become a winner which is a pretty noble thing to be so we're joined by steve curley who's the founder of the institute for economics and peace thanks for coming on the program steve my pleasure now i've got to say steve it's a very interesting name the institute for economics and peace so where did the idea come from for, I presume you have to call this a business? Uh, well, it's a not-for-profit. Uh, it's non-partisan, and it's, so it's not politically aligned. So that'd be, that's the first comment I'd say. Yep. Now, the origin of it actually is it's an interesting story. So my background's obviously in business. So I've set up a couple of international IT companies which became publicly listed. Set up a family foundation which worked with the poorest of the poor. So that took us into a lot of war zones, near post war zones, and it's actually a place called Northeast Kabul in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world. Walking through there, I started to wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world? And is there anything I could learn from them? So did some searching on the internet and couldn't find a list, their list of the most peaceful nations. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that poses a very, very profound question because if a simple businessman like myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world that hasn't been done, then how much do we know about peace? If you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? If you can't measure it, how do you know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? So that's the origin, the so, Institute for Economics and Peace. So, Steve, how do you measure peace and, and what are some of the uh, implications in an economic sense uh, where we don't have peace? Sure. Now, that's fine. Uh, so there's two ways of measuring peace. Um, so the, the, the measuring of peace well, quite often depends on the definition you use for peace. So we've got two types of measurements we've got for peace. So the first one, which is internationally acclaimed, is the Global Peace Index. So that measures the absence of violence or fear of violence and measures 163 countries in the world, which is about 99.7% of the world's population. So it has three domains to it. So the first, the first domain is ongoing conflict, the 
second domain is militarisation, and the third domain is internal safety and security. So that measures things like the levels of homicides, uh, the number of people in jail, level of violent crime, level of terrorism, state-sponsored terror, uh, uh, number of people incarcerated, and the number of police and other measures, small arms and other measures like that. So the three come together to give a composite measure of peace. Now, that's all well and good, and that's what you could call a negative measure of peace. So it tells you the actual peace of the country. Now, there's another way of being able to measure peace too, which is called a positive peace. So they are the attitudes, institutions, and structures which create or sustain peaceful societies. By measuring them, you've now got the ability to be able to be able to predict what the future levels of peacefulness of the country may be. And that consists of sort of eight different pillars which work together. But the profound thing with positive peace, although we started off using it to measure peace, it's highly statistically related uh, to many other things which we could think are important, like econ- like economic performance, say, better measures on uh, well-being and happiness, better measures of resilience and better performance on uh, development and uh, also on the ecology. So I know Peter wants to come back to some of the, let's look at some of the trouble spots, but just in terms of positive peace, how does Australia rate on that measure? It's pretty good. It's the, uh, I think it's the, I haven't got the exact figure off the top of my head, but it's somewhere between 12 and 15 in the world. So that's, a, that's, a, it's, that's quite good. But the interesting thing is the majority of countries in the world are actually improving in positive peace. But you can see in most of the advanced Western democracies, it's actually staying static or slightly declining. Uh, some democracies like the US, the drops have been quite dramatic. And this is this is point to a uh, how can I put it? The best way of being able to describe it is less uh, coherence uh, within society. You're starting to see a, a more uh, a fractionalization of views, uh, less tolerance, and be and, and be other ways we'd be able to see this getting manifested. Mm. So, Steve, when you compare Australia on the peaceful index and the, the positive or the negative index, how do we show up? Australia does well. Uh, so we're, from memory, I think we were 12 on the global peace index, which is about the same as where we are on the positive peace index. So Australia's right up in that top band. But, but, so, uh, so, can, so where is the most peaceful in the world? Is it some, some Asian uh, mountain climbing area where, where no one could, could, hold, <laughs> could hold a gun or something? Yeah, like Bhutan. Yeah. No, actually, it's no, actually, it's Iceland. Iceland's the most yeah. peaceful nation in the world. Too cold so to be violent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if we look at the top ten countries, uh, what we'll find is six of them are a, a, a European. Yeah. Uh, uh, three of them lie in, lie in Asia. And the other one is Iceland, which lies in the middle of the Pacific. And, and oh, so, sorry, Canada, and sorry, Canada's in there as well. So five of them are in in uh, in Europe. Now, if we also look at them, what we'll find is nine of those ten are uh, Western democracies. But, but Steve, one, how, how does that translate into? Because you are the Institute for Economics and Peace. How does yep. sort of a high score on the Peace Index mm. translate into, or does it translate into economic success? Oh, it does. Okay, so I can. I'll just rattle off a few statistics mm-hmm. for you. Yep. So, if we look at the cost of violence to the global economy, it was about fourteen trillion dollars in 
2018. So that's about $1,800 uh, per capita for every person on the globe. Now, if we went back and we took the countries at the top of the Global Peace Index compared to the countries at the bottom of the Global Peace Index, and we did that today, now we took those countries back 60 years, on average, the per capita income per annum is three times higher in the high positive peace countries. And so as you start to, so that's something like 1% GDP growth compared to 3%. And so you start to compound that over 60 years. We're talking sizable amounts of money. If we come and look at positive peace and use that as the measure, and we look at the countries which are improving in positive peace compared to the countries which are deteriorating, we went back seven years. The, the GDP growth has been seven times higher in the countries that are improving. And so they're, 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 they're remarkable differences. Mm. So if we find for every 1% improvement in positive peace equates to 0.9% improvement in GDP. Countries which are high in the positive peace have the inflation rates which are about, on average, a third of countries which are low in positive peace. If we look at foreign direct investment, the countries which are improving in positive peace, twice as high as countries which are deteriorating. We find that if you, you other things like sovereign debt, for example, we find countries which are improving in positive peace, the, the credit ratings, the agencies rate them the same or improving, whereas countries which are deteriorating in positive peace have deteriorating sovereign debt ratings. And that's okay. just, they're, they're, just, they're just some of the stuff. Yeah, it's quite significant. Now, Steve, when I was trying to think about... <clears throat> Um, yeah, how your information um, could be used, I thought to myself, well, if you think about the war in Syria, that created a whole lot of refugees that now are challenging the economies of Italy, the rest of Europe, and even Brexit was a consequence of the, the refugee outflow from, from France into, into Britain. Can you give us an example of where... <coughs> the information that you have gathered at the Institute is actually used either by governments or by businesses to actually get some kind of outcome? Sure, yeah. Now, I can give you a, a whole range of examples. So, so we're a global institute. We are headquartered in Sydney, but we've got offices in New York, Brussels, The Hague, uh, Mexico City and Zimbabwe. Now... So we do contract research and our work's used by the UN, World Bank, OECD, Commonwealth Secretariat, just to name some. Mm. Uh, the US government the, uh, last year passed an act, and I haven't got the name of the act quite right, but it was something like the Violent, Foreign Violence Containment Act. So that act was a bipartisan initiative which came out of the Foreign Relations Committee, but the bill and the contents of the bill were based around uh, the Institute for Economics and Peace's work. Mm. So that would be, that'd be one example. The Secretary-General of the UN regularly uh, 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 references our work on the cost of violence to the global economy. 
Uh, I could name a whole lot of more. More what the me- office in Mexico. Uh, it's training a, 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 the military and the police there yeah. on positive peace uh, in efforts to sort of try and be able to stem the systemic violence and corruption there. It uh, comes into play there. We've got uh, strategic relationships with groups like Rotary International. Uh, that's the largest uh, civic organisation in the world, with the 1.3 million members and 35 thousand clubs around the world. They're rolling our workout, the Positive Peace Workout, globally uh, into their clubs with the idea of being able to use that as a mechanism to work on the uh, projects, which they do in different parts of the world. And we've got a number of other Mm. relationships Mm. of that that style. I could keep going. but I'm sure uh, you could, mate. No, it's, it's, it's a fantastic story, and it's great to think that it's coming out of Australia. Congratulations, mate, and thanks for joining us on the program. Look, it was my pleasure. That's Steve Killalay, the founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace. And that's the show, Paul. Um, yeah, look, great show, Peter. I really enjoyed the first interview with uh, – well, I yeah. wasn't able to take part on, but just to learn more about that business, I actually might – Fork out and go to one of yeah, the restaurants. I, I can it's, see you converting from your subway inclinations and giving old uh, Guzman E. Gomez a go. I've got to say, every young person I know really gives it the thumbs up. Look, I haven't been there. That, that, that pleasure's in front of me. I was really interested to hear what Anthony Doyle had to say about uh, interest rates mm. and the economy. That's positive. Yeah. Probably a good way to leave the show, Peter. Yeah, and given the fact that we did talk to the founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace, I should say to you, go in peace and serve the Lord. And positive peace to you too, Peter. <laughs>